0: Anybody out there? Roll up, roll up, ladies and gentlemen, and children of all ages. Books, comics, sci fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights. And here, your host, Dadryl Leyland. If you were a kid in the 1970s, you watched The Six Million Dollar Man. Based on Martin Caden's novel Cyborg and debuting in the US as a series of three telefilms in early 1973, the series was picked up for a full weekly order for the January 1974 television season, and, like its titular hero, ran and ran. Over the course of five years, the $6 million man would be joined by the Bionic woman. Not the $6 million woman, for fish, she sounded like a really high class call girl. The Bionic boy and the Bionic dog. Our hero, astronaut Steve Austin, say it with me, a man barely alive, would go up against every high-tech device in the analogue age, from faulty fellow bionic men, evil death probes, and even Bigfoot. The series engaged in all manner of Cold War intrigue, with stories involving spies, political intrigue, scientific thrillers, as well as outrageous science fiction adventures involving time travel, aliens, and spacewalks. Steve Austin, played with almost cardboard stoicism by future fall guy Lee Majors, was a NASA test pilot and astronaut who was involved in a death-defying crash that cost him his legs, right arm and eye. At a cost of just over $6 million, nearly $35 million in today's money, he was rebuilt thanks to a pioneering technology known as Bionics to be better than he was before. Better. Stronger. Faster. To be honest, there were few 70s kids who wouldn't have traded their flesh and blood limbs for Steve's nuclear-powered ones. The opening titles to The Six Million Dollar Man are iconic in all the best ways. Distinctly memorable, even today, 50 years later, they can cause a wistful nostalgia in people. In a little under 50 seconds, they lay out the premise of the show with minimum fuss. Everyone who was a kid when this show aired remembers them, although in this first season, the memory cheats. Here are the first season opening titles. It looks good in Aston
1: Roger. BCS arm switch is on. Okay, Victor. Landing rocket arm switch is on. Here comes the throttle. Several breakers in. We have separation. Roger. Inboard and outboard are on. We're coming forward with the side stick. All looks good. Roger. I've got a blowout. Amber, three. Pitcher your pitch to zero. Pitch is out. I can't hold altitude. Correction, Alpha horn is off. Trip selector is emergency. Flight calm. I can't hold it. She's breaking up. She's breaking. Steve Austin. Astronaut. A man barely alive. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. We can make him better than he was. Better. Stronger. Faster.
0: The shorter than you recall, the music slightly different, the opening monologue not quite the same. All that came later, as did other elements of the show. And it seems weird to go back and watch the early ones now and see that they weren't present at the beginning. We'll come to that later. The show was huge in a way that it's hard to describe nowadays. The merchandise was everywhere. The envy of all kids, until Star Wars came along, was the six million dollar man doll replete with engine block and rule back plasty foreskin for kids to witness the bionics at the heart of their nuclear hero. You could look through the back of his head, where his bionic eye curiously made things appear to be further away rather than magnified. There were Bigfoot dolls, bionic woman dolls, space shuttles, maintenance tables, board games, curtains, Halloween masks, comic strips in Lookin magazine, t-shirts and books. Everything a growing kid needed to immerse themselves in the bionic world before fully immersive TV and film existed. Lee Majors and his girlfriend-slash-wife Farrah Fawcett were the posh and becks of the day, followed by paparazzi plastered on the cover of entertainment magazines. The Six Million Dollar Man was a genuine phenomenon. Which, it saddens me to say, belies its actual quality. Sure, if you were of an age like me, the show can still be watched through the goggles of nostalgia and enjoyed for what it is, slightly hokey, cheap and cheerful entertainment designed to prevent you from changing the channel between adverts. For the most part, the show is very undemanding. Looped dialogue will explain the plot to the viewer in the most rudimentary way, as if the producers didn't really think anyone was paying attention, so they needed to pander to the audience wherever possible. No new footage is shot if it can be nicked from the Universal Stock Footage Library, and there are frequent cuts to blurry, out-of-focus shots of actors, as if the director didn't get enough coverage to make the scene work in editing. As the series wore on, there was little characterization and even less attention to detail, and it's all served up in a po-faced, slightly stiff manner, as if every episode is the end of the world. Even Lee Majors has said he preferred making The Fall Guy, simply because he got to be goofy and funny every now and again. It really doesn't hold up against the good stuff of the day, such as The Rockford Files or Columbo, so it really can't be expected to be held up as quality TV by today's standards. There are exceptions, though. The original pilot movie is still an incredible piece of work, because it focuses on the character, not the mission of the week. Steve is a lot more interesting in this pilot film than he would be in the series, at least until producer Kenneth Johnson came aboard. Steve is a man conflicted in the telefilm. Is he even a man anymore? He struggles with his bionics. He ponders his very existence, repulsed by the Frankenstein's monster he has become. This telefilm also features a far more believable portrayal of the government. The series had the avuncular, totally loyal and rather bland Oscar Goldman, played by the permittand Richard Anderson as Steve's handler, But the film has the far slimier, conniving and spiky Oliver Spencer, played with relish by Darren McGavin. Spencer has no time for Steve's self-pity, telling him to get on with it and making no bones about the fact that Steve is government property. Robocop stole a lot from this telefilm. Spencer is a bastard, but a likeable one. And his relationship with Steve is far more adversarial and, frankly, dramatically richer than that with Goldman. The pilot's only misstep is the score, which is uninteresting and dull. The original telefilm was followed by two far weaker movies of the week, The Solid Gold Kidnapping and Wine Women and War. Both of these movies, produced by Glennie Larson, shoved Steve into the James Bond mould, a move that suited neither him nor Lee Majors. Steve Austin isn't James Bond, he's a cowboy. The first season of the show is the best, despite all of the above problems and a few more. As you may expect for a series that was rushed into production following the success of the telly movies, it did what other shows, such as Quantum Leap and The Incredible Hulk, for example, also did, rip off the plots of successful movies. Both the aforementioned ripped off Rocky in their first season, and The Hulk even did a riff on the popular aeroplane and earthquake disaster movies of the day. The Six Million Dollar Man was no exception with the first proper episode, Population Zero, doing a takeoff of the 1971 science fiction horror flick The Andromeda Strain. Again, The Hulk would also do its own version of this film, in its 1982 segment A Minor Problem. Population Zero was written by Elroy Schwartz and directed by Jeanette Schwark, who would go on to direct the Supergirl movie and episodes of Smallville, amongst many others, in a long and illustrious career. This was, though, his only episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. The opening is quite eerie. A patrolman pulls into a small town called Norris, which has a population of 23. Apparently it's a very small town. He's shocked to find the entire population all dead on the floor. He is hit by the same whatever it is, and also falls to the floor equally dead. Some ner-do wells have done this deliberately to send a message to the establishment. Surprisingly, for anti-establishment figures in a 1970s TV show, these aren't young hippies, but suit-wearing, card-carrying, respectable-looking types. As you may have guessed, it isn't long before Oscar manipulates Steve into going to see what's occurring.
1: Hi, Steve. Hey, Oscar. What are you doing? What is this? It's a roll bar from a dune buggy. I figure if you ever run out of things for me to do, I'll open a machine shop. You're early. Oh, I'm late. I gotta catch a plane to Washington. Our meeting is off. What's the problem? Small town, upstate. Had a population of 23. Looks like they're all dead. Looks like Afraid to send anybody in there. The last person that went in didn't come out. And we don't know why. I gotta move. Is the story, are you? We're keeping it a secret. We've ordered the army to seal off the town. What's the name of the town? Place called Norris. Norris? I went to high school 20 miles from there. Steve, will you stay out of this, please? But Oscar, I know those people. You're too valuable for this job. Besides, I've got another assignment for you. If I need you, I'll let you know. Well, fine, Oscar, you do that. You can reach me at Army Headquarters in Norris.
0: Of course Steve is aware of Norris and those people, though. What are the odds that Steve would know the 23 people that live in this small little community? Also, a later episode establishes that he went to high school in Ojai, California, so presumably Norris is 20 miles away from there. He should really have visited his mum and dad while he was in the area. I like to think Oscar is totally manipulating Steve in this scene. He makes it clear the committee don't want Steve going, so Oscar just casually drops the name of the town into his conversation. I wish Oscar had been more like this instead of the big brother he became, but this is probably all in my mind. Steve investigates and finds that everyone is alive after all, but they all seem to be suffering weird after effects, and Steve figures this may be something to do with ultrasonic waves, when the patrolman tells him that he only started suffering when he took off his motorcycle helmet. Of course, the bad guys are really quite lame, and it's all a revenge plot from a vengeful old employee of Oscars, Dr. Stanley Bacon. He felt that using high-frequency sound waves to immobilise enemy forces was a viable proposition, but the OSI didn't agree and canned him. Bacon demands a $10 million ransom and threatens to use his technology to kill people if his terms are not met. The government don't give in to his demands, which causes Steve a few problems. As usual throughout the mission, Steve befriends a lady, but here she's more mature than usual and smarter. More of this would have been appreciated rather than the O-head Steve normally associated with. Jamie Summers accepted, obviously. Unusually, Steve doesn't just blurt out his top-secret status like he would do in future episodes, but plays it coy.
2: Oscar Goldman has a reputation for getting things done. Have you known him long?
3: About a year.
2: Is he your boss?
1: You think so? No, that's not fair, I... I like Oscar. He's bright, he's straight, and underneath that shell of red tape, he's even got a heart.
2: What's underneath your shell? Look, I don't mean to pry, but I am a government doctor with top-secret clearance. And I know something about what's current in medical research. What I saw you do today, no ordinary man can do. So? So I'm curious. Can't you tell me?
1: Look, I had an accident a little while ago. When they put me back together, I was better than before, okay?
2: Does it have anything to do with bionics and Dr. Rudy Wells? No comment. Steve, how has it affected you? What does it feel like?
1: It feels just peachy, doctor.
2: I'm sorry. No further questions.
1: Look, Chris, try and understand. Sometimes I get a little tired being the object of medical
2: curiosity. What makes you think it was just medical?
1: That's what it felt like.
2: Oh, I don't know. Man and woman work hard together in dangerous situation. Man saves woman's life. Man is a figure of great mystery and fascination. Run that through your computer. Hey, what do you say we
1: start this conversation over, huh?
0: As mentioned, this episode wisely plays up Steve's cowboy side. He's the lone hero who comes to town to solve the problem before moving on. The script plays up Steve's more taciturn nature, his quiet, almost understated intelligence. He is an astronaut, after all, and his keen moral sense of right and wrong. Majors is actually pretty good here. He's relaxed, charming and engaging, and at this point, enjoying the show and the role. This episode also indulges in the first of many retcons.
3: I'm Dr. Bacon. I, uh, think we have a mutual acquaintance, Oscar Goldman. Is he in Norris by any chance? Well, he should be by now. A shame I won't be able to congratulate him. He built his cyborg after all. How he had to fight the red tape. Imagine, this. This man has two bionic legs, one bionic arm and a bionic eye, all atomic power. The, uh... The eye, I suppose, is uh, infrared with a uh, 10, 12 to 1 zoom? 20. 20. <laughs> you really went all out. Well, how fast can you run? Um, 35, 40? I've hit 60. 60? How much did you cost? Six million. Six must be very proud. Do you realize that for one-sixth of your cost, they could have had my weapons system perfected? I think you've given them some second thoughts about that. The length of that, isn't it? After they've wasted 10 years of my life. That's why Goldman's here, to negotiate. Don't treat me like a 12-year-old, Mr. Austin. Goldman sent you here to stall. He's stalling because he thinks I can't pull it off. Now, isn't that the truth? All right, it is the truth. Computer says you can't do it. You haven't got the power source. That's what the computer said three years ago. So wrapped up in their computers, they can't even think anymore. Well, I have the power. Is eight thousand volts enough? A... Well, Grantch, it's not portable. But if you've bought off the right people, you can tap into the local power station and feed directly off the grid. Look, give me a phone, let me talk to them. Too late for that. They've asked for a lesson, they're going to get it. People are going to die. Oh, please, don't do that. Don't turn it on a town. Of course not. They would never care about it. just a town. In order to make them understand, I would destroy government property. In this case, a battalion of the army, our friend Oscar Goldman, And for the cherry on top, you, Mr. Austin, I will reduce you to a six million dollar pile of junk.
0: The pilot film had Spencer be the head of the Bionics programme, not Oscar. And Steve was just unlucky. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Naturally, he became a hero. Spencer called him Scrap, whereas here it's implied that Steve was picked. Also, the telefilm had him as a civilian test pilot, not an Air Force colonel, and I have no idea why they'd alter that. Some elements, the series returned to its roots in the books. Sadly, that wouldn't last either. Because Bacon knows about the OSI, Dr. Rudy Wells, the surgeon who performed the bionic operation on Steve, and Oscar, he's also aware of the limitations of Steve's bionics, and it's here we learn of his Achilles heel. Extreme cold. It's a bit daft that Steve gives off low-level radiation, as that means he's a danger to everyone he's in frequent contact with. But the extreme cold thing makes sense. Anyone who's ever been in a really cold country knows how quickly their phone dies, and it's a similar phenomenon here. Also, it's not an insurmountable problem. Under normal circumstances, he'd be wearing cold-weather clothing, whereas here, in Northern California, he probably didn't really expect this to come up. The problem was used to great effect in the later episode, The Rescue of Athena 1, already covered on an earlier episode of this podcast. The climax to this show is one of the better ones of the series, and a tad more realistic than what would come later. There are no bionic sound effects, making Steve's jumping and running seem more ominous, and the sped-up heartbeat when he's running at the end is a very effective mood setter. Nice attention to detail as well, in that Steve does not sweat under his bionic arm. People like to nitpick the science in the show, but we're watching a series called The Six Million Dollar Man, not a science documentary on BBC Four. Make it as plausible as possible, like this scene, but strict adherence to science isn't a requirement. What's particularly notable about this action beat is that Lee Majors is a very impressive runner. Some people look a little stupid when running, see Roger Moore or Sir Michelle Geller, but Majors is very commanding. Given how much running he does in the show, I guess it was a job requirement. In the pilot movie, Steve mentioned his unwillingness to kill, although there were clearly casualties, and it's the same here, with Steve throwing a steel pillar through the van the bad guys are in, and it exploding. I don't want Steve Austin to be a murderer, and I'm glad they pulled back on this, but there's no denying this is murder. I mean, it was self-defence, and they had it coming, but, you know. It's all wrapped up neatly as 1970s TV tended to be.
1: Hi, Steve. Hi, Oscar. Well, we're in pretty good shape. Federal agents arrested Johnson at the power station. The army's getting ready to leave. And so am I. How do you tell a man who saved your life that he disobeyed an order? You don't. I agree with you. Doc, thanks for everything. I'll be seeing you.
2: Want some company?
1: Okay, uh, if you don't ask a lot of questions.
2: No, I don't have any questions. I figured you out all by myself.
1: Oh, and that's the end of your curiosity?
2: My medical curiosity.
1: You know, I just ran that through my computer. And? I like the readout.
0: Population Zero is a pretty good episode that stands up quite well. The first season of the show is arguably the best, with a number of stories that still hold up, despite the analogue nature of our hero's augmented limbs. It's not as slow as other episodes, building nicely to its climax, and the elements that made the show memorable are all coming into play, after the far grittier pilot and the misfire that was the sequel movies. Steve looks more like his iconic self here. The car keys, the belt, the hair, and the slow-motion effects are effective and well-realised. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there are no bionic no 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 as yet, but this actually adds to the proceedings. Steve seems scurrier here, more an unstoppable juggernaut than the friendlier version seen later. He's still a stand up guy, but one you clearly don't want to get on the wrong side of. It's a show that's crying out for a reboot, not perhaps as gritty as the Battlestar Galactica one from 2003, but certainly a show that took the premise, the characters and the idea a little more seriously. I fear though that if this is ever made, it would be more of a comedy, a laugh at the show, like the Starsky and Hutch film, which is a shame. Prosthetics have come a long way since 1974, and a new hero with these abilities, and many more, could be a true digital hero for the modern age. The six billion dollar man, anyone?
4: Okay, so a new podcast needs a new promo. I mean, how do I start? I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the internet. I didn't invent the internet, but the internet was invented for me. No, that's way too egotistical. Uh, it's got to be awesome. It's got to catch everybody's attention. Also tell people what the show is about. So first things first, high energy pop music from the 80s. Hi, I'm J. David Weeder here to tell you about my new podcast, Spockward, a Star Trek podcast where I will talk about Star Trek twice a month. I guess, I guess that's pretty much it. Wow, it feels like there should be something more there, something grand and something epic. It also has to sum the show up, but I don't want to sound desperate. Maybe I should try another take, but this time there needs to be some epic epicness to it. Let's try this. In a world. Oops, oops, oops. Let me try that again. In a universe replete with Star Trek podcasts, one guy will challenge the status quo by boldly talking about Star Trek on the first and third Sunday of every month. Yeah, I probably had it right the first time. Spockward, a Star Trek podcast on the first and third Sunday of every month at spockward.com or wherever podcasts are accessed. It's Star Trek fandom with a heaping helping of social awkwardness. Spockward, you get it? Yeah, you get it. See you at spockward.com. Weeder out. Did I really just say weeder out? Come on.
0: Okie dokie, let's have a look at the email, because the email's always fun. First is Lou Giaconetti. Hi Luke. David and Todd on Amazing Spider-Man, episode 165. Andy, just finished listening to your coverage of the early days of David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane on Amazing Spider-Man. Given my long fandom of Venom, I know some of this era quite well. That is the issues featuring Venom, but I never read the other issues, so I appreciated your take on them. These definitely seem like the kinds of Spider-Man stories I would like, so if I can find reading copies of them, that is reprints or digital more likely, I will definitely check them out. They're always on sale on Comixology There's, There's very rarely a month goes by there isn't a Venom sale of some description, and obviously these you can just buy the ones you've not got, or the collected editions, or whatever. They're normally quite cheap when you have Comixology sales. More so than anyone else, continues Luke, David Michelinie is my Spider-Man writer, given the time frame that I started reading comics. Even then, I never collected Spider-Man during Dave's tenure on the book, but I have a fair number of the issues from his run just for the Venom appearances. It is appropriate that my Spider-Man writer is also my Venom writer, but there you go. It's amusing now to look back and know that Michelinie was not in favour of Peter and MJ's marriage, because to me, he's one of the few writers who made it work. To keep the theme of the email running, I have long held that McElhaney parodied the idea of the marriage with Carnage, Shriek and Doppelganger in Maximum Carnage. No idea if it was his intention, but that's how I read it. McFarlane is McFarlane. You either dig him or you don't, and that's fine. I generally do enjoy his work. I followed him over to Spawn for a while as a 12, 13-year-old, but in hindsight I do prefer some of the artists who came in his wake, namely Mark Bagley. Not that I turn my nose up, but Todd, not at all. His style is just so personal that it's hard to look at the art as just a Spidey story rather than a Todd McFarlane Spidey story, if that makes any sense. No, that makes perfect sense. I think the thing with a lot of those artists that's carried on throughout the years is the off-model nature of them. There's a fine line between off-model and making the character your own and suddenly being unrecognisable. And there's a lot of interesting things that we can talk about recently with, like, the changing of the S symbol on Superman's chest in The Man of Steel isn't the iconic copyrighted one. So could that cause problems for DC Comics, perhaps, in a court of law? Who knows? So it's the same with this, really. Spider doesn't look like Spider-Man. He looks like Todd McFarlane's version of Spider-Man. And I suppose you'd... It's whether your tolerance level for that is high, And I, mine was. I, I think the world was ready for a different take on him after, you know, 25 years or so, or however old Spidey was at that point. And of course, 12-year-old Luke was a little overwhelmed by Mary Jane in these issues. I'm also glad to hear Silver Sable pop up. Sable will always be one of the very few comics bad girls, if you remember that 1990s comics trend, who deserved the title. She was a cool operator who took no crap and got the job done. I always dug that she looked powerful and sexy without wearing a ridiculous or revealing costume. Sable recently has popped her a few times, including an Absolute Carnage and the Doctor Doom ongoing, and there is always some murmuring about a film featuring her and the Black Cat. I'd be down with that, personally. See, I'd be down with a Silver Sable and a Sable Industries movie. Personally, I'd rather keep Black Cat for Spider-Man, but I'd... A black cat could have worked in the Andrew Garfield movies where he clearly looked 30. And especially seen that he's cast Felicity Jones as Felicia Hardy. So that could have been interesting. Especially in the wake of killing off Gwen. But obviously that film series crashed into a wall after um, some some major missteps in both films, not just the second one. I kind of think Black Cat would be a hard sell in the Tom Holland era. I think you need a more mature Spider-Man to sell Black Cat. But uh, I'd certainly be down with a Sable I think a Silver Sable movie would be fascinating. Again, like I mentioned in that episode, Cat Rachel Nichols as Sable and I'll be there. As always, digging your coverage of the friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man to and eager, eager to hear Sorry, whatever comes next. Thanks, Luke. Well, no, thank you, Luke, for emailing in. Always appreciated. Our next email and final one for today is from Oliver Villar. Hey, Andy, before I get to part one of the awesome... Michelinie McFarlane run on Amazing Spider-Man, I did listen to the Denny O'Neill ASM retrospective. Such a short run. And the takeaways from that period were the introductions of Lance Bannon, Madam Webb and Hydro Man and the two annuals on which he worked with Frank Miller. Of course, when compared to the Michelinie McFarlane run, it's definitely not a contest. I will say that O'Neill had a better grasp of Tony Stark's alcoholism than Michelinie and Layton did. Sorry, but I'm probably in the minority who thought Tony Stark got off too easily in The Demon in a Bottle. Whereas O'Neill, who had a real-life problem with alcohol, made it much more realistic and tragic. Anyway, on to McElhaney and McFarlane. From the issues you spotlighted, issues 298 to 303, the latter four were the best. So glad McFarlane inked his own work, starting with issue 300. According to comics creators on Spider-Man, McFarlane was allowed to ink his own work on ASM after Jim Salicrup looked over his work on Incredible Hulk. Also in the same book, Michelinie mentioned that McFarlane preferred to draw the classic costume, so he worked that into the script for issue 300 where MJ wanted Peter to get rid of the black costume. Michelinie also mentioned that McFarlane was a real joy to work with and was very reluctant to make suggestions in the beginning because he didn't want to overstep his bounds. You mentioned Peter getting his real costume back in issue 301. It actually was a costume designed by MJ's fashion designer friend under the assumption that it was for a costume party in web of Spider-Man issue 39 which preceded issue 301 chronologically. Looking forward to part two. Oliver Villar. Well, thank you, Oliver. Thank you for those little nuggets of information. Yes, my memory of Web of Spider-Man is always very spotty, largely because it's a distinctly unmemorable book. Let's be honest. Some of you may be wondering where this episode came from, given that last time I promised you something more Spider-Man related. Well, that will be my ranking of the Spider-Man movies, but I have run out of time. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes here at the palace, some work going on, some some remodelling. And so I wanted to get an episode out so you didn't all think I'd podfaded, but I didn't have time to re-watch all of the films and get that one recorded and edited before, obviously, I have to pack everything away to allow for the, the modellers to come in and Doctor Doom to install his portcullis and all that stuff. So that'll come probably next time, if we're lucky. Okay, you can email me at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Always a pleasure to hear from you about The Six Million Dollar Man, Michelinio McFarlane, whatever. Whatever you want to talk to me about, I am open for suggestions. Uh, Take care. Everything will be fine. Allegedly. And we'll see you next time.